Again, everyone. I, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I can hear it in my voice in my head that my voice is not 100% this morning. So forgive me, I'm keeping my water bottle a little bit closer than I normally would so I don't have to go all the way to the floor to grab it. Um, don't worry, it's not a sickness thing. I don't want you to run away scared. It just is yesterday. Um, the Rochester Soccer Club, the under seven girls fire red team had a really far, f hard fought 3-3 tie. And I may, as the coach, have been screaming just a little bit too much. Uh, my, my daughter may have made the save of the season as she was playing goalie, as she had Spider-Man-like reflexes and knocked the ball away at the last second. And my voice may have cracked. Yes, yes, it was all me. Thank you. It's the genetics, of course. I, I may have screamed so loud that my voice audibly cracked in front of all of the parents on the opposing sideline. So <clears throat> today I will do my best when I need to clear my throat. I will try to turn away from the microphone and remember that. The question I have as we start today is, when is the last time that you made a vow to someone? Because culturally, I don't think we really do vows anymore. What we do is we do promises. The thing is, promises can be and promises are broken every single day. We promise things and we know that in the back of our mind when we make a promise, what we're really saying is, hey, I'm going to do the best I can. I will do everything in my power, but if something comes up, I mean, we both know you can't really hold me responsible if I break my promise to you. There's no real repercussion that you're going to bring against me. Uh, for example, if I promise my wife that I am going to be home at a certain time from the office on Monday so that I can take Sawyer to her karate practice, but if I fall short of that promise, an emergency comes up at work, or there's traffic on the way home, I forget that I need to stop for gas and I'm late. If I miss that target, if I don't make it home in time, I don't expect to come home and have my wife berate me for it. I would hope and I expect her to be understanding and gentle, even though I am the one who broke my promise to her. Right? Even though technically she is the one that has been wronged, I expect her to give me some grace. But if I were to do this time and time again, then all of a sudden, what is my promise? Right? My, my promise becomes nothing more than just a fancy way of saying, I'll see what I can do. Again, culturally, we really don't do vows. The one last place where we make vows would maybe be on our wedding day. It is probably the one and only place that any of us have ever made a vow, and hopefully, hopefully, we only do that once, right? Uh, I, I'll tell you, I have made wedding vows twice in my life. Now, before you gasp and scandal, once in 2005, right, when, when Linda and I got married, and again in 2015 when we renewed those wedding vows. Right? We, we recommitted to the same words that we uttered a long time ago when we were young and dumb. The, the problem is, since our culture doesn't necessarily make vows anymore, and we only make promises, 
promises, again, that are easily broken or easily amended, we don't necessarily understand the power of a vow. A vow is like a foreign language to us. It's a term from a time lost long ago, maybe a more simpler time, a more romantic time. So now in our mind, I think the vow has become synonymous with the promise. I wonder if those taking those vows on their wedding day, do they truthfully understand what it is that they're doing? I wonder if it's any different that promise, that vow they're making that day, is, is it the same as if they promised their boss that the project is going to be done by Friday, even though they know in their heart there's really only a 50-50 chance that that happens? But often it's easier for us to make a promise, knowing we might break it, than it is to explain on the front end that we may not succeed. How much of this misunderstanding as to what a vow is plays into the fact that we see marriages collapsing at such an astonishing rate. Uh, today, as we walk through Judges 11, we're going to be talking about one specific vow that was made a long, long time ago. And it was a vow that, because it was made, had absolutely disastrous consequences. And not because the vow was broken, but disastrous consequences because the vow, it was fulfilled. So before we dive into the rise and the fall of this man Jephthah in chapter 11 of Judges, I think it's important that we take a quick look at what a vow is to God, right? Not what a vow is to my American sensibilities, uh, but there's a few verses that I pulled out of our Old Testament. Uh, two out of the three verses written before the time of the Judges. So these are, these are scriptures that the men living at this time, they, they should have, or at least at a bare minimum, they could have already known and been familiar with. Uh, the first one comes from Numbers. It's Numbers 30, verse 2. It says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. It makes sense. If we vow a vow to the Lord, we should not break our word. We should do everything that we say that we're going to do. Okay? Uh, Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23 says this. It says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. It's an important piece of information right there. If we make a vow to God and we do not fulfill it, that scripture says that we are guilty of sin. And specifically, it tells us that we are better to actually never make a vow than to make it and then break it. This seems pretty serious. It sounds like we should only ever make a vow, especially a vow with God, when we are certain that we are going to follow it through. And if we are not 100% certain that we will, we are better off staying silent. The last piece of scripture comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. It says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. I think that's a strong word. If we do not repay our vow to God, he considers us a fool. Right, hopefully you've seen the point. Vows, while they feel culturally irrelevant to you and me, vows are not irrelevant to God. And again, a vow is something you should only do if you are prepared to see it through. To see it through to the end, no matter what the cost might be. 
If you are not prepared for the sacrifice, you should not make the vow. You should wait. You should be quiet. Because silence would be preferable. Silence would be wiser than a vow that you do not want to see through. And that is advice that I wish Jephthah would have heeded. You remember last week, uh, we closed chapter 9 by seeing how Abimelech, the son of Gideon, how he had his skull crushed by a woman throwing a big old rock. And after Abimelech died, there, there was a handful of judges that came and went that were told very little about at the beginning of chapter 10. But there is something very important from chapter 10 that's going to lead us into where we are today. What we see in chapter 10 is that the people of Israel are once again ready to fall flat on their faces as this cycle of judges continues. Chapter 10 tells us how the people of Israel again were ready to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges 10 verse 6, it says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashereth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. I hope you noticed something a little bit different there. We've seen the Israelites fall on their face before, haven't we? But this time, what we just read, we see that the, the Israelites are falling a little bit for, farther and a little bit harder than we've seen them fall before. They're, they're no longer just chasing thirstily after the Baals and the Ashereth. Right? What we just read is that they are chasing after the gods of all of the people, of all of the lands that surround them. They, they've again forgotten about God. But this time they are so desperate just trying to grab a hold of anything and everything that they think might help them. And in the midst of their panicked state, they've left Yahweh behind. And again, the cycle of Judges tells us what happens then is God hands them over to their enemies, to their oppressors. He hands them over to their enemies for 18 years. It takes 18 years for the people to finally come to their senses and to cry out to God. They come running back to God and they've got their hands out and they're saying, help us. And after they've fallen time and time again, and now they have fallen so hard, we're going to read what God's response is back to the people. And, and the same way they've fallen harder than they ever have before, God's response back to the people in chapter 10 is also very different from what we're used to hearing from him. Again, the people run back and they're saying, we're sorry, we're sorry. They say, we're sorry, we've sinned, we know, we've served the Baals. But this is God's response to them. It's verses 11 through 14 of chapter 10. <clears throat> says, the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen let them save you in your time of distress. <clears throat> Sorry. When I read this, I hear the voice of a husband who has been cheated on one too many times by an unfaithful and ungrateful wife. God says, I took you back when I caught you lying down with the Amorites. I forgave you after those indiscretions with the Amalekites. 
When you got yourself caught up with that bad crowd in, in Egypt, I was still there for you. I don't even have to go into any more details about what happened with all those other guys, do I? I always took you back. I always bailed you out, but no more. Essentially, God says, why don't you go call one of your boyfriends? See if they can redeem you the way that I always have. And the unfaithful spouse now has a choice. Who will they run to? The game of cat and mouse that they have been playing with their husband, it sure seems to be over. You know, he's changed the locks on the door. There's no going home. The people, they have no idea if the God of their forefathers is ever going to take them back. So they have a big problem. What are they going to do? Their enemies are coming. They no longer have a big, strong, faithful God that's going to come and bail them out. Or at least they don't think they have a big, strong, faithful God anymore. So the leaders of this area are called Gilead. It's an area east of the Jordan River. It's an area that's been occupied by the Israelites essentially ever since they were redeemed out of Egypt. The men in this area, they have a very important question that they need to get answered. Uh, we find that question in Judges 10:18. It says, "The people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, "Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead." And this is where we're going to insert now our main character of our story today, Jephthah. And Jephthah, just like so many of our heroes that we find here in the book of Judges, by the time this chapter comes to an end, we are truthfully unsure whether he is a hero or whether he is a zero. Jephthah's story begins, and it sounds so eerily familiar to that of the aforementioned Abimelech that we talked about last week. You see, Jephthah's father sleeps with a prostitute. And from that transaction, Jephthah is conceived. His dad, of course, still goes on and has sons with his wife as well. And when all of the legitimate sons, when they reach a certain age, they begin to realize, you know what, at some point, daddy's going to die. And when he does, the more sons that are running around this house, the more ways we are going to have to split our inheritance. So it would be in our best interest as the legitimate sons of our father if we sent Jephthah, the illegitimate son of a prostitute, let's send him away. And they do. Jephthah, though, becomes a strong and mighty warrior. Again, we see his life run into some sort of concurrence with that of Abimelech, Gideon's son, via the concubine. Abimelech, we read last week out of the scripture that he, he, he made this band of what's called worthless and reckless fellows who would follow him. And when Jephthah flees, he does the same. What we're told in chapter 10 is he gets a band of worthless fellows. And he becomes essentially like a tribal warlord, I guess you could think, of Jephthah. He, he gains a reputation of being a great leader, being a feared combatant. And some time goes by after his brothers have kicked him out of his father's house. And what happens is, is the people of his hometown are forced to come crawling back to him. They're forced to come back to Jephthah and say, Jephthah, come and save us from these Ammonites who are preparing war against Israel. Chapter 11, verse 6 says, they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. What Jephthah is offered in return, if he does come and he bails out his people, he's offered to rule over all of Gilead. 
What we read in the verses that follow, it's quite an interesting business deal, honestly. And, and I do mean business deal, not divine intersection. Because this whole thing that we read in chapter 11, it, it is nothing more than a transaction. There is no divine will. There is no divine inspiration. What we read here is two parties trying to hash out a deal for themselves. Because remember, all of this is happening after God has already told the people, you have stepped out on me one too many times. Chapter 10 ends with the people trying to figure out on their own what it is they are going to do, how they are going to save themselves. And the answer that they come to is Jephthah. Do they come to that answer because God told them that was the way to go? No. They come to that answer because it makes the most sense. Jephthah is already strong. He's already a leader of men. He comes with a pre-made army of worthless men who are willing to fight. Right? Jephthah is not a Gideon hiding in a wine press. Jephthah is the obvious choice for this job. The men of Gilead, they do not approach Jephthah with this offer to come and, and share in the will of the Lord. They approach him with a business deal. They say, if you come, if you save our rear, we're going to make you our leader. And even Jephthah himself, he does not attempt to invoke God's will. Uh, Jephthah does not pray over what it is he should do with this decision. What Jephthah sees is an opportunity. It's an opportunity not just to uh, reclaim what was stolen from him when he was kicked out of his father's house, but now to have more power than he ever would have before. If you do read this exchange verse by verse, what you're going to see is that the, the places where you see God mentioned, truthfully what we're hearing are just poor attempts at broken men trying to sound pious. To masquerade what is really happening here, these two factions just trying to hash out the details of a power struggle. What we read here is that God has been relegated to the role of a silent witness. A silent witness to a human contract between a desperate people and an ambitious man. We see more negotiations from Jephthah in verses 12 through 28, I should say. These are negotiations that then take place between Jephthah and the king of the bad guys, the king of the Ammonites. And again, what we see here is Jephthah do what any good leader would do. Before war and before violence breaks out, he comes and he tries to broker peace. Right? He's got his new job title. He's already been made the leader of the people. And now he wants to see if he can keep his job title without having to risk his own life. And in these negotiations, we learn that the Ammonites, they're upset because they feel that the land that is being fought over was always theirs in the first place, and that the, the Jews have just been occupying it unjustly. Sound familiar? But what I think is most interesting here is that we learn that Jephthah, Jephthah may not be the big, dumb, lunk of a warrior that maybe I always thought that he was. We learn that Jephthah is actually pretty smart. We see in this piece of scripture that Jephthah knows the history of his people. He knows the story of his forefathers. Regardless, Jephthah in his negotiations, he shows us that he is familiar with the Israelites' history and story. He knows all of it. He knows that it goes all the way back to Egypt. Someone took the time and taught him these things. Jephthah is no fool. Jephthah is not ignorant. Which also leads me to believe that he has no excuse to be ignorant about the ways of God. The ways of God of the same people that he claims to know so much about their history. Remember, chapter 10 left us with doubts. 
as to if God would actually show up for his people ever again. But again, like a husband whose love burns so deeply towards his unfaithful bride, God opens his home back up to her. God comes back for Israel. In verse 29, we, we see this. It says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. After punishing and testing his people, deep down God knows that, that he's not done with them. He knows he can't just quit them like that. And just as we saw with Gideon, the Spirit of God comes upon Jephthah. The Spirit of God comes upon him not because the men of Gilead were God-fearing, not because Jephthah was the Redeemer that God chose, but because of God's deep love for his people. We don't actually even know in chapter 11 if Jephthah is even aware of God's presence upon him or if he just assumes the victories that will come are going to be based upon his own wit and skill. Personally, I do believe that the latter is true because of what happens next. You see, Jephthah, smart and strong and brave and valiant, he goes and he does something very, very dumb in verse 30. He didn't need to do this. Jephthah could have just headed out into battle with God's blessing and God's presence, and he probably would have gone down in history as another one of these deeply flawed men that God used to bless his people. But Jephthah is about to make the mistake that his name has now become synonymous with. Jephthah makes a vow. Verses 31 and 32. It says, and this is the vow he's making to God. So this is Jephthah speaking. He says, Whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the, the Lord gave them into his hands. You see, I think Jephthah should have known better. I think Jephthah should have known what was written in Numbers and written in Deuteronomy. He should have known that he had no need to make this vow. See, Jephthah knew history, for sure. Jephthah absolutely had book smarts, but Jephthah did not know God's heart. And in his rashness, he makes this very extreme vow. Again, what we see is he does not consult God in prayer to see if this is the thing he should do. Jephthah just plows ahead confidently, promising to slay and burn something of value when he returns, if he returns safe and victorious. And at this point, we don't know what's going to greet him at his door. Uh, perhaps maybe a goat is going to stumble out of the woods like it did for, for Abraham and Isaac, right? Worst case scenario, maybe something more valuable. Maybe a cow gets out of its pen and crosses his path. Maybe really the, the worst case scenario, maybe one of his servants pops their head out the door. Wouldn't that guy be in for a big surprise? Hey, boss, glad to see you're home. Wait, what do you mean? But even as valuable as a slave or a cow might be, it's, even as valuable as a slave or a cow might be, Jephthah's going to follow through with his vow, his ill-advised vow. We know Jephthah does strike down. Jephthah crushes the enemy. Jephthah subdues everyone who would oppress his people. Right? Happy days are here again. 
So he returns home, and it's time to find out who or what will greet him at the door of his triumphant return. We looked at verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. Verse 35, as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the great cause of trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Upon the news of what is to happen to her, his daughter goes to mourn with her friends for two whole months. Surely during this two-month time period, Jephthah will pray to God. He will ask, what should I do here, God? What are my options? Wouldn't you do that? Not Jephthah. Verse 39, we're just going to look at the beginning of the verse. It says, at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. I said earlier, Jephthah, smart and brave. And I have to amend that. Maybe I shouldn't amend it to dumb and cowardly. Maybe not dumb and cowardly. Cowardly, yes. But dumb may be the wrong descriptive word for Jephthah. See, Jephthah was absolutely cowardly in this exchange, but only because he did know that there were ramifications, real ramifications, if he were to break his vow with God. But instead of heaping those ramifications upon his own big brawny shoulders, he puts the punishment for his own arrogance and his own ignorance upon his innocent daughter. I had a, a change of opinion myself this week when it came to the intelligence of Jephthah. Because in my mind, I have always pictured him as this big, dumb lunk of a man, right? A brawler, a warrior, a guy with more muscles than brains, right? One of those guys. A gym lunkhead, right? Somebody who only knows how to pick heavy things up and put them down, and that's all he does. But I don't think this is true of Jephthah. I can't write off Jephthah's cowardly actions to low mental capacity, because everything else in this chapter seems to indicate that he is a seemingly very well-rounded, capable, intelligent man. When the men of Gilead, when, when they approach him, he negotiates with them keenly to gain power for himself. When he goes and he approaches the king of the Ammonites, it shows us again that he knows the history of his own people. He knows dates, he knows places, he knows battles that happened long before his time. I have personally always wanted to shortchange Jephthah as the dumb son of a prostitute who killed his own daughter because he was too stupid to know that that's not what God would want from him. But what if, what if Jephthah was not academically stupid? What if he was, in fact, intelligent? What if he was book smart enough that he knew about all the stories about God delivering his people what if he was smart enough to know that making a vow to God and breaking it would be a recipe for disaster? What if Jephthah was as book smart as any man that had lived in his day, but what he neglected was something far more important than the memorization of facts or the training of his body? What if Jephthah neglected to know the heart of his God? 
Could that be the real failing of Jephthah? Jephthah's great sin was relying on his own wisdom and not seeking the Lord's. Jephthah made this vow thinking that he knew enough. Jephthah thought that he could manipulate God into bringing him victory by making this big, overwhelming promise. And that is, make no mistake, the only reason why Jephthah made this vow, it was to save himself so that victory would come to him so that he could reign over all of Gilead. And again, he was willing to fulfill the vow. He did not want to break his promise. I'm telling you, if a male servant would have exited that house, do you think he would have hesitated? But for all of his worldly knowledge, Jephthah did not know the heart of the one whom he called upon. And we should not make the same mistake. We should not confuse information retention with godly wisdom. We should not confuse verse memorization with knowing the heart of the Father. We shouldn't start making the mistake of thinking that a piece of paper hanging on an office wall is more important than a calling. You see, Jephthah knew enough information to make him dangerous. But what if he would have taken the time to seek God's heart? What I wonder is how many exit ramps, how many alternatives would God have possibly provided him with? How many other options would Jephthah have had other than doing the detestable thing of murdering his own daughter and offering her as an unholy burnt sacrifice? What if Jephthah's heart would have been stirred by the story of Abraham and Isaac like we mentioned earlier? What if he would have heard the heart of God in Leviticus 20 where God specifically prohibits the sacrifice of children? He actually tells us there in Leviticus that this is a common practice among the worshipers of Molech. Molech is one of the gods of guess who? The Ammonites, the very people who Jephthah was fighting against. Seeking God has always meant more than fact memorization. It requires application. See, there's, there's many, many atheists and agnostics that they know the words of this book inside and out. But when they read it, they don't seek God. They don't acknowledge Him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and this isn't on the screen. Um, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Right? Seek God's heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Another verse you've heard before, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. These are the words of Jesus as he's pleading with us to not be anxious about the things of this world, but telling us, seek God, seek God's ways, seek his righteousness. I've, I've said this more than once before. I know it's hard to believe, but I have met many, many men and women in my life that are smarter than me. It used to bother me, if I'm being honest. I, I used to think that I had to have the answer to every question, that I had to have every scripture reference on the tip of my tongue, and if I did not have that, that I was failing. That if I was going to be worthy of carrying the title of, of minister or pastor, or whatever you want to call it, that I needed to have this robotic-like ability to, to just spit up and regurgitate facts. But then I met some folks who had accomplished that skill, 
Some people who knew all the things that I wanted to know, but the information, it never changed them. It stayed in their mind. It never penetrated to their heart or to their soul. They had heard all of the same information that I had, but it did not transform them. They continued to conform to the world, not transform as they sought out being sanctified. Right? They read this book. Again, I'll hold it up again. They read it like it's a textbook, hoping that they can memorize enough facts that, that their knowledge is going to save them. See, when I read this book, I read it so I can better understand the heart of God, the one who created me, the God who saved me, who redeemed me. I don't care whether you're reading Judges or Matthew or Psalms or Revelation. Do you read it so that you can understand the heart of your Father? Or are you just reading it so that you can absorb facts? Book smarts will not keep you in the Father's will. A heart submitted to seeing the Father's kingdom come to life here on this earth, that will. If you find yourself reading your Bible just hoping to prove what you already believe, that would be trouble. Do you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you through the text? Do you allow it to stretch you to places where you may indeed be uncomfortable? Would you prefer to just read the parts of this book that make you feel nice and warm and fuzzy? Or are you willing to seek out texts that will confront the status quo? When you read something that is difficult, what do you do? Do you just simply store it away in a database as information? Or do you meditate upon it? Do you pray on it? Do you ask God for clarity and understanding? Do you seek wise counsel to help you understand? Seek knowledge. Again, important, but don't value it over wisdom. And if I can leave you with this thought, if knowledge was the end-all be-all, then how do you explain the thief on the cross, the man who died next to Jesus and woke up in paradise? Maybe I can make it more modern for you. You walk into an execution chamber, and inside there is a man who is strapped to a chair, and on the wall there is a clock counting down the seconds until this man is going to be euthanized. You decide you're going to be bold, that you are going to share your faith with him in, in his final moments. And you're presented with a choice. We'll make it a multiple choice test, okay? Those are always the easiest. Three options, you have a 33% chance that you're going to get it right, okay? Do you option A, do you begin, do you take the time that you have, the limited time that you have to help this man memorize the Ten Commandments? Option B. Do you open the book of Genesis and begin to debate with him whether or not the earth is 6,000 years old? No hands have gone up yet. Good. Option C. Might you take a deep breath and might you look him in the eyes and say, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And whoever, whoever believes in him is not going to perish, but is going to have eternal life. And I know there's some that will say, there goes Daniel again, making things too simple. It's too extreme of an example. The second half of 2 Peter 3.9 says, God does not wish that anyone should perish. That it's his desire that all would reach repentance. And the truth is, there is a clock that is ticking for all of us. 
But in some sad, weird way, we are not as lucky as the man who is strapped down to that chair because we have no idea how many more ticks remain on our clocks. Have you ever thought of how many men and women and children pass through your life every day right in front of you and they have no idea that the time on their clock is going to run out far quicker than they ever believed? See, what they need to hear is the story of a God who left heaven and suffered so that they could be redeemed before it was too late. Because again, what is the burden? The burden is faith. The burden is not knowledge. Knowledge is not the end game. Knowledge should lead us to wisdom. Obtaining knowledge is not a bad thing. Don't misquote me on that. As long as obtaining the knowledge is a stepping, stepping stone towards knowing the heart of your father. As long as that knowledge is being used to deepen your faith. But, but knowledge by itself, without faith, is worthless. And one last thing, please pray before you make a vow, because it just might save someone's life. Pray with me.